As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. The most famous animal plural is the plural of the word octopus. Perhaps in no area is English stronger and more vibrant than in the number of words that it has for state of being drunk. Coming up on Word Matters, Thomas Nash's use of animals as metaphors for those who imbibe heavily, and what is up with the varied plural forms for animal names? I'm Emily Brewster, and Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media. On each episode, Merriam-Webster editors Amon Shea, Peter Sokolowski, and I explore some aspect of the English language from the dictionary's vantage point. One could very well argue that categorization without words is impossible. 16th century satirist Thomas Nash used words to categorize drunkards, and Ammon thinks enough of those categories that he wants us to discuss them. The English language is particularly rich in, well, in many areas, but one area is in the kind of bewildering number of synonyms that we have for certain words. And Perhaps in no area is English stronger and more vibrant than in the number of words that it has for state of being drunk. This comes up in a variety of different ways. In the 18th century, Benjamin Franklin wrote a pamphlet and published it of several hundred different words for being drunk. And more recently, Paul Dixon wrote a book with the title Drunk, in which he compiled almost 3,000 specific words for being drunk throughout the ages. We have so many words that lexicographers can't even manage to agree on what seems like fairly narrow semantic terrain. For instance, in 1623, Henry Cockrum defined the word perpotation as ordinary drunkenness. And then about 100 years later, Nathan Bailey defined the same word as a thorough drunkenness, which could say something about the respective drinking habit and such of those lexicographers. Maybe Bailey was a lightweight, so to speak. But the fact remains that we just have so many words for drunk that we don't really know what to do with them all. So we can't fit them all in our dictionary. They're just way too many, and most of them are not really in common use anymore. But some of these, we feel kind of bad because they're lovely words, and they're fun, and they're interesting. And a great example of words which we do not define but feel it's in the public good to know are uh, eight types of drunks that came up in Thomas Nash's 1592 satirical pamphlet which was called Pierce Penniless. And he didn't just come up with different ways of being drunk. He came up with eight specific kinds of drunk people. And this is also not just an illustration of how language has changed over time, but how language has changed, but some things remain unchanging. And that is the kind of drunk that you come across in a bar anywhere in the world. So for instance, his first kind is, and Emily, you can bear witness to this seeing as you are, 
the owner and proprietor of a fine drinking establishment, you may recognize some of these. For instance, ape drunk, which he defines as ape drunk is when he leaps and sings and hollows and dances for the heavens. That's the I'm fun sure drunk. All, right. And it starts fun. It gets less fun as it goes along because the next kind of drunk is lion drunk. That's when he flings the pot about the house, breaks the glass windows with his dagger, and is apt to quarrel with any man that speaks to him. Yeah, no good. What's interesting about English as well is some of these words, such as lion drunk, have actual near synonyms in the language. For instance, barley chewed, which I think comes obviously from barley, was a kind of Scots term. It more or less is defined as being drunk and mean. We have swine drunk in Nash, which is when he is heavy, lumpish, and sleepy and cries for a little more drink and a few more clothes, which I have to say <laughs> confuses me a little bit there at the end when a drunk wants a few more clothes. Drunk, they're getting cold. Yeah. That must be what it is. I guess they're drinking outside that night. A sheep drunk is when he's a wise in his own conceit, when he cannot bring forth a right word which is a little different than, I think, our modern use of sheep, which the word has taken on more kind of connotation of somebody who follows unthinkingly. Maudlin drunk is when a fellow will weep for kindness in the middle of his ale and kiss you, saying, By God, Captain, I love thee, go thy ways. Do not think of me so often as I do of thee. I would, if it please God, I could not love thee so well as I do. And then he puts his finger in his eye and cries. <laughs> So again, this may have been written in 1592, but I think for many of us, this kind of rings true today. There's something about this at this moment in 1592. This is the age of discovery, but this is also the great age of collections, collecting things. The cabinets of curiosity, the sort of classification became a gentleman's hobby at this time. This is before there were monolingual dictionaries. And it seems like he was having some fun, but also that he was trying to classify, like in a scientific way, a taxonomy of drunkenness. It's a very human impulse, the desire to classify. Yeah. That's an excellent, excellent point. There are only three or four more to go. Martin drunk is the sixth when a, a man is drunk and drink himself sober, which I have to say, I'm willing to trust Thomas Nash on many things, but this one I don't think really rings true, the drinking himself sober. Goat drunk is the seventh kind when in his drunkenness he has no mind but on lechery. And that is perhaps something that we are unfortunately familiar with today. And then eighth, perhaps my favorite, is fox drunk when he is crafty drunk, as many of the Dutchmen be, that will never bargain but when they are drunk. Apologies to any Dutchmen or Dutchwomen <laughs> listening to this. I don't think that this reflects our opinion. This is only Thomas Nash. It is interesting that he had to come up with these in a classificatory system, as you said, Peter. And a number of people followed up and kind of imitated him in this. In the next 50 years, there was somebody who wrote The Figure of Six, which was, again, a humorous collection of things arranged in groups of six. That writer had six kinds of drunkard. There was somebody else who had a figure of seven, and somebody wrote a list of nine kinds of drunks. In 1617, Thomas Young added bat drunk, which is somebody who will drink privately and at night. But I think that's a very reasonable explanation of why you would come up with these kinds of things. Doesn't quite explain why we've ended up with 3,000 words for being drunk in English, though. No, it doesn't. I want to take issue just for a moment with the fact that Thomas Nash is describing his drunkards entirely through animal analogies until he gets to maudlin. 
And maudlin is from the name Mary Magdalene. So they're all animals <laughs> until one's a woman. I object. I don't blame you on that. But, you know, at least he is referring to the drunkards as men, which is probably in his experience. I don't think that this is a fair list. We'll put it that way. No, I don't think it's a fair list. Merriam-Webster published a book called The Slang of Sin in 1998, written by Tom Dalzell. And it categorizes slang words according to basically the seven vices, <laughs> right, in the, from the church. The first category is alcohol. And among his alcohol slang, he includes an animal. This is the only one I noticed that was an animal name for a person who was doing a lot of drinking. And that was the word pigeon. Oh. I know. A Never pigeon as someone who is drunk. Is that an Americanism? Uh -huh. I just wonder when that would be used. That's an oddity. It is an oddity. It's not in Green's Dictionary of Slang. Mm -hmm. And actually in Gross's Dictionary, when was that published? Um, 1785. Mm -hmm. Okay, 1785. Gross defined pigeon as a weak, silly fool, like who's easily cheated. Oh. There you can see maybe a pigeon is a foolish drunk. I don't know. Yeah. And bringing it up to the 20th century, at least, in Webster's third, one of the neat things that you can do online is search according to words used in the definition of the unabridged dictionary, Webster's third, and just doing that for the word drunk. So drunk being a word in the definition, I do see right away bagged, bevied, blithered, blitzed, blotto, boiled, bombed, and boozy, and buzzed. And that's just through the bees. <laughs> So there's over a hundred of these used in the Merriam-Webster Unabridged Dictionary. Now, if you want to do the same search, but for the word drunkard, uh -huh. we've got 22, uh. among them bloat, barraccio, fuddler, I'm not going to read them all, rum pot, stew bum, swill bowl, toss pot. <laughs> I don't see any animals in here, though. These words all sound kind of pre-modern. They sound like words from the famous Francis Gross Dictionary of the Vulgar Tongue. Ammon can tell us a lot more about these dictionaries of cant language. There was kind of golden age of dictionaries of the language of the underworld. And speaking of Gross, this is too good an opportunity to not mention one of his finest entries. And I'm going to leave off some of his particularly more off-color entries, but a relatively PG one, which relates to the topic at hand, is his entry was Admiral of the Narrow Seas. I'm going by memory, so bear with me. I believe it referred specifically to a, a man who was so drunk that he leans over and vomits in the lap of the person next to him. <laughs> oh, um, <no. laughs> Very specific. And I don't think that was actually in the first edition. I think it was in one of the later editions. But one of the things that's interesting to me about that and about Nash in general is that we have this incredible storehouse of words for drunk. Most of them are really semantically narrow. They're just drunk or drunkard. And very few of these words deal with the kind of extended meaning of what is a potentially semantically rich terrain. So Nash talks about different kinds of drunks, and whether he's right or wrong is almost immaterial to my mind, is that he's trying to give a broader picture that I think is interesting. And there are very, very few words, I think, in English that actually do that. Some of the few that we do have in our dictionary are pot valiant and pot valor. And pot valiant refers to the state of being courageous when under the influence of drunk. And pot valor is the state therein. And so that's an interesting distinction. It's not just drunk, it's drunk and foolheartedly courageous. And not about an animal. I think it's very interesting that these are all animal terms that he has used as his analogies. To me, it reminds me, again, of this age of discovery, which was an age of collecting, collections. This is before museums, this is before dictionaries. And so 
if you were a gentleman of a certain social standing, you might do what became the grand tour and come back with interesting objects and taxidermied animals of your little hunts, a few paintings from Italy and France and that kind of thing. But they tended to be exotica. They tended to be things you didn't find at home, which it meant in England. Now, Thomas Nash was not a wealthy man, and so I like to think of him as presenting an exhibit of these eight kind of drunks and bringing them around and showing them to people and perhaps making a penny or two off the exhibition of these eight kinds of drunkards. He was a contemporary of Shakespeare. Yes, and one of the things that many people feel is that many of the words which Shakespeare is thought to have invented because he is cited first for their use were actually in use in Thomas Nash's writing some five to 15 years before Shakespeare used them. He was also very lexically inventive, and he has this wonderful, rich vocabulary, which even though he is certainly well-known, has not been as widely studied, and he is not given as much credit for his language as Shakespeare is. Well, Rightfully so, but still he's getting a little bit of the short end of the stick. Well, it's good that we've talked about him today. I wonder how he would feel about us highlighting this particular set of his linguistic contributions. He'd raise a glass, I'm sure. You're listening to Word Matters. I'm Emily Brewster. Coming up, what is the plural of octopus? Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media. Word Matters listeners get 25% off all dictionaries and books at shop.merriam-webster.com by using the promo code MATTERS at checkout. That's MATTERS, M-A-T-T-E-R-S, at shop.merriam-webster.com. I'm Ammon Shea. Do you have a question about the origin, history, or meaning of a word? Email us at wordmatters at m-w.com. I'm Peter Sokolowski. Join me every day for The Word of the Day, a brief look at the history and definition of one word, available at merriam-webster.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more podcasts from New England Public Media, visit the NEPM Podcast Hub at nepm.org. The plural forms for animal names are inexplicably varied. Two cats, three dogs, but four deer and plenty of fish in the sea, though also a variety of fishes. And then there is the puzzlement that is the plural form of octopus. We'll dig into them all. For most of us, the period of time in which we talk the most about animals is when we're children or when we're talking to children. And that is, you know, aside from those of us who are farmers or biologists or zoologists, But we talk a lot about animals, mostly when we're kids. And it's surprising to me how much variation there is in the plural forms of animal names for a set of vocabulary that is so frequently encountered when we're so very young. So young children will call one mouse a mouse, and two, you know, eventually they get that it's mice. One mouse, two mice. Plenty of animal names have got the regular English plurals, cat, cats, bird, birds, dog, dogs, puppy, puppies. A few of them have irregular forms like mouse, and lice follows the same form. And then we have the other categories where there is no plural at all. We call it a zero plural. It's not true to say that there's no plural at all. It is that the plural form of the noun is a zero plural. It is identical to the singular form. So one deer, two deer, Mm. not one deer, two deers. 
we have a lot of animal names that have both the plural form, the kind of traditional plural form form to the suffix, and the zero plural. So a type of fish, bass. You can have one bass or you can have basses. You can have two partridge or you can have two partridges. You can have two mink or you can have two minks. One sheep. You never say sheeps. You just say sheep. One sheep, two sheep. That's that zero plural. One deer, two deer. Many of the animals that have both forms, the one formed with the S and the zero plural, are animals that are hunted, fished, or trapped. And if you're one of the people who does this hunting, fishing, or trapping, you're more likely to use the zero plural. That's what the evidence shows. But the S form, the kind of more traditionally suffix-formed plural use of the word, is often used to emphasize a diversity among kinds. So I caught three bass, but there are various basses of the Atlantic Ocean, for example. A place where antelope feed, but the various antelopes of Africa and Southwest Asia, for example. What's also interesting about these curious animal plurals is that in the cases where a name for an animal takes on an extended meaning, the plural form reverts usually back to standard. So, for instance, if there are an infestation of mice running through your house, they are mice. But if you have a large number of the connective devices to move the cursor on your computer, those are mouses. (laughs) You don't have a bunch of mice on the desk. And similarly, for louse, if you have many of them on your head, they are lice. But if your workplace, for instance, is infested with a group of caddish, ill-behaved men, you would refer to them as louses, not as lice. <laughs> but I have seen in Staples, the manual device for controlling the cursor referred to as mice. Mm. Ah, so it goes both yep. ways. I think especially if we use it in the pejorative, though, for instance, louse becomes louses. Ox as well. Everybody knows that the plural of ox is oxen. But what I remember as a child when I used to play in Scrabble tournaments was that the plural form of ox in a pejorative sense for people is ox is. And so it was always fun to try to play oxes because when I was a 12-year-old playing Scrabble, you play in a tournament and your opponent thinks a poor child can't even spell right. But this is Scrabble. It's a bloodthirsty game, so I'm going to challenge him anyway so he loses a turn. And then <laughs> see the kind of light die in their eyes when they realize that this is an acceptable variant in certain circumstances, and they lose a turn. Are there other pejorative animal terms where we revert the plural back to normal? Well, ass comes to mind, mm. but I think they're always asses, aren't they? Yes, that's true. <laughs> in life as in language. <laughs> The most famous animal plural is the plural of the word octopus. Oh, yes. One of the things that is most fascinating to me is that the word octopus is actually surprisingly modern. 1759 is the date that we give in the Merriam-Webster.com dictionary. That is the date of the earliest known use in English of the word octopus. It's actually pretty culturally significant. I think like octopus is an animal that children certainly know to recognize from a very young age. It's really a pretty recent addition to the English language. And as its plural forms, we include octopuses, octopi, and octopodes. Well, that octopus, that word is kind of transparently Latin. It's a classic, what we call new Latin, which means a word coined often in the 17th, 18th centuries by scientists using Latin word parts. Yes. 
And because it looks Latin, that U.S. ending, like in the word genus, like in virus is another one. That U.S. ending really does say Latin, Latin, Latin. But it just so happens that that's not the case here. But because that Latin suffix is there, that Latin-looking suffix, the plural octopi was given to the word octopus and continues to this day to be a common plural, one octopus to octopi. It means that smart people who knew Latin pluralized it as if it were in Latin. Yes, but here's the thing. It's not ultimately from Latin. It was really only part of New Latin for a short time. It actually is Greek. Of course. And the Greek plural, if you want to be true to etymology, if you're going to let etymology be the driver of your pluralizing practices, you will want to say octopodes. Which is the Greek manner. Yes. But on the other hand, if you are a speaker of English and you want to recognize the fact that octopus is functioning as an English word in the English language, then you can just say octopuses or you could say octopus in keeping with deer, etc. The insistence on octopodes is to me a little bit like the people who insist that you should never say the hoi polloi because in Greek <laughs> hoi means the. So it's redundant based if you know your Greek because quite honestly, most of your audience doesn't know their Greek. That's why we're speaking English. Does anybody use octopodes aside of in a kind of self-referential to my own knowledge of Greek sort of way? I only use octopodes because I think it's funny. (laughs) Yeah, I bet it's one of those terms that's used more often to cite itself. It's a lot of fun to say. Another pattern is antipodes. For antipodes, it looks like that it was used to refer to Australasia, I believe, the sort of southern hemisphere Former British colonies were referred by British colonials as the Antipodes. It's not a word we hear a lot, but it is maybe the most common form of that particular Greek plural. Maybe, yeah. And it reminds me of epitome. Which is also that Greek root. It also serves to remind us that the Greek language in large part was absorbed by Latin, which then morphed into French and then crossed the channel. A lot of English words that ultimately trace back to Greek went through French and through Latin all the way back to Greek. There's a long trajectory. This is a different case because this was coined by scientists deliberately using these terms. Octobides is much more enjoyable to say. It It does feel like (laughs) you're speaking, you're channeling Ogden Nash in every sentence that you use it. There's a great quote from the Bradford Observer, which was a paper in West Yorkshire, England. This is from the 7th of November, 1873. But as the octopus grew and multiplied, it became necessary to speak of him in the plural. And here a whole host of difficulties arose. Some daring spirits with little Latin and less Greek rushed upon octopi. As for octopuses, a man would as soon think of swallowing one of the animals thus described as pronounce such a word at a respectable tea table. In this condition of affairs, we are glad to know that a few resolute people have begun to talk about octopods, which is, of course, the nearest English approach to the proper plural. Now, anyone with small children will know that the octopod is the name of the vessel in which the octonauts live. They are these do-gooders who live under the sea, and they are cartoon. I have several drawings of them in my house. There's the word in Webster's Third. Let's see if I can say it. Peristeropodes, which is defined as a group of birds comprising the curassows and megapodes, and having feet with the hind toe inserted low down as in pigeons, coming from the Greek word peristera, 
meaning dove or pigeon. But we're getting into kind of obscure territory here. Yeah, we have also the Pygopodes, P-Y-G-O, which is the kind of classification of diving birds, including the loons, grebes, and sometimes the auks. The important part for Octopodes and the pod of P-O-D-E-S became in Latin P-E-D, ped for foot. It refers to the legs or the feet of these creatures. I do think that the best reason to use octopodes is really just because it's fun. Is this really your preferred plural? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sure I taught it to my children. They were ridiculously young to learn a word like octopodes. Why else am I going to be talking about multiple octopus? (laughs) So now you're spreading this in the world. You're inculcating this plural in your children. They're going to go forth and spread it among their friends. Yes, that's what I'm trying to do. Although I will note that just now I said when I'm talking about multiple octopus and I used the zero plural. So maybe I use both. Before we leave animal plurals, I do want to point out that sometimes we use a plural form without really knowing that we are using a plural form, as with the word bacteria. Bacteria is a plural. The singular of that one is bacterium. So in that case, we're using a Latin plural. In truth, a person should use the plural that feels most natural to them. In the case of octopus, you have a variety of options, and they are all perfectly fine. Let us know what you think about Word Matters. Review us wherever you get your podcasts or email us at wordmatters at m-w.com. You can also visit us at nepm.org. And for the word of the day and all your general dictionary needs, visit merriam-webster.com. Our theme music is by Tobias Voigt. Artwork by Annie Jacobson. Word Matters is produced by John Vosey. For Amon Shea and Peter Sokolowski, I'm Emily Brewster. Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media.